What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. In honor of July being BIPOC Mental Health Month, this month's episodes will center around the voices and experiences of artists of color. Today we are talking with singer, songwriter, and musician Mia Barron, founding member of the band Pom Pom Squad. The band has a great indie rock grunge sound that has been called deep, raw, and absolutely savage. Pom Pom Squad's first full-length album, Death of a Cheerleader, came out in 2021, and in one reviewed was called A Fiery Exploration of Love, Anger, and Coming of Age. Pom Pom Squad has several performances coming up, including Lollapalooza in July and an international tour in the fall that includes shows with last week's Going There guest, Bartiz Strange. You can find all of Pom Pom Squad's music, tour info, and updates at pompomsquadband.com. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so that we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the reasons that there is a stigma of mental illness is that there can be a societal pressure as to how we are, quote, supposed to feel, think, and act. Generally speaking, there is often a bias that being mentally healthy means feeling and acting happy, calm, and confident, thinking in a positive and optimistic way, and being very popular socially. If we feel, think, and behave in this way, we are considered mentally healthy and, quote, normal. If not, our mental health and well-being can be questioned, and we may be considered mentally unhealthy and, quote, abnormal. Now, feeling happy, confident, optimistic, and being popular are wonderful things if they are an aspiration, not an expectation or a mandate. The difference is an aspiration is something we may want to work towards but don't necessarily feel less than if we don't always achieve. But a mandate or something that we are supposed to feel, think, or do can be overwhelming. This is especially true when we face social pressure like racism or sexism that makes us feel less connected to the world around us, or we struggle with a mental illness such as depression or anxiety that makes us more prone to negative thoughts and feelings so that being outwardly happy does not feel genuine to us. And instead of being free to explore our authentic emotions and our own mental health journey, anything that does not meet this happy standard is criticized. 
And people who struggle with mental illness are then particularly stigmatized for not meeting this societal standard. Now, Mia has taken on these societal standards in a very interesting way by evoking the image of a cheerleader. As a child and teenager, Mia saw a cheerleader as that happy, confident, and popular standard that she was supposed to live up to. And in her mind, because of her race, sexuality, and mental health issues, she felt that she did not fit this standard. She often felt what she described as chaotic and lonely. Later in our conversation, Mia explained that these feelings may have developed in part from her struggle with the mood disorder, specifically bipolar disorder. And she explained how she coped with not meeting her perception of this cheerleader standard through her music, through controlling her representation of herself through social media, and by finding supportive people in her life who did not require her to conform to that societal standard. And one of the things that we discuss in particular is how Mia embraced her, quote, galaxy brain. Now, I had not heard this term before and discovered that galaxy brain can refer to someone who doesn't accept conventional norms and standards and is able to see the bigger picture of an issue and is willing to keep digging until they find out how they feel, what they think, and what they want to do. Often this phrase is used as an insult, like someone is making too much of an issue. And to me, this judgment is in line with the stigma of mental illness. Society often needs people to just ignore problems so they can meet that happy, optimistic, and confident ideal. But Mia talks about how thinking more deeply about the issues in the world and in her own life was a pathway to mental health, not an obstacle. Now, as we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions that you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to hear addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so that they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Mia has to say. Hey, Mia, welcome to Going There. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for doing this. And let's just get started right away with a song that, from your perspective, is encapsulates your mental health journey. I would say the song that most directly references my mental health uh, is a song called Heavy Heavy off of an EP that I wrote a few years ago called Ow. I think for me, it kind of marks the beginning of my mental health journey and a, and a more pointed journey towards being okay and coping and learning how to live a healthy adult life and wanting to live a healthy adult life. Um, I think at that point in my life, I was always in a lot of chaos. And I think, you know, something that's maybe typical of a lot of people in my generation is like kind of romanticizing that chaos, like loving that chaos in a way. But I guess for me, I just realized a few years ago that it really was hindering my creative process and hindering me as a person rather than helping me as a person. And I think that song helped me find the language to talk about what I was feeling and what I was going through. You know, you had a really interesting quote that said that loneliness is intrinsic to being young, which I thought was a lot of wisdom. I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that quote. And I, I think as you were talking, I almost feel like chaos is also so intrinsic to being young. So it's very difficult, I think, when you are young to know 
is the chaos, is the loneliness a sign that there's something wrong? Like there's something that's a mental quote unquote illness, or is this a sign that you're just picking up on what's going on in the world and you're actually quite mentally healthy. You're just perceptive and stressed out. Right. I, well, I also think at least for me, what I can say is, you know, is there something wrong period versus is there something wrong with me as a human being? Is there something wrong with me as a person? And I think when you're young, I guess something I've been kind of figuring out in the last couple of years is, you know, you grew up hearing, this is like just a, an example, sort of tangential, but it's like you, you grow up hearing the word marriage and you grow up, you know, sort of seeing the vague concept of marriage. Right. And it's like, now that I'm older, I think when I was younger, I was like, why do people get married? That seems weird and, and silly or, you know, whatever trivial, whatever I thought it was. Um, and I think the meaning of something like these big overarching phrases like marriage, love, happiness, the meaning gets lost. You kind of just sort of have vague associations with that thing your whole life. And then you get older and you start realizing that there actually is a, a meaning of the word marriage. There's a, There was somebody at some point who decided, I love this person so much that I want to be with them forever. I want to commit to this one person. And then, you know, it became a government official. It became you know, societal, it became, you know, uh, capitalistic, but I like to think about there, there's a, there is a meaning behind all of these concepts. And I think when you're, you're young, you don't, because you lack that definition of, of everything, because you haven't had life experiences, you know, if you're feeling unwell, if you're feeling unhappy, you're just like, there's, I, I'm incapable of happiness. There's something wrong with my, you know, it's not something wrong with my brain chemistry. It's something wrong with me on a fundamental level. This is who I am, you know, and I, I definitely went through it, you know, thinking that I was a bad person, thinking I was burdening people, thinking I was, you know, weighing people down because my mental illness wasn't my brain chemistry. It wasn't not having the tools to cope with what I was feeling. It was, it was me. It was, it was a, a problem with me that, you know, was never going to be fixed. And one of the things that you're talking about is I think something that happens often in society is that there are these constructs that are supposed to be facilitative of growth and a dynamic life and you know a vehicle for understanding ourselves whether it's school or marriage, family, whatever whatever these things are, government and Sometimes it winds up feeling like, well, these aren't vehicles for our growth. They're, they become sort of expectations or standards for us to either live up to or not. And that changes the whole dynamic of it because instead of it being like, oh, I have, you know, I'm struggling with something, I'm feeling lonely, I'm feeling chaotic. Marriage may be a place where I can learn to understand myself and share that. It's more like, no, 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 it's a standard. Like, can I get to marriage? Can I get to graduation? Can I get to and and that that really changes it from being something that is I think can be constructive and facilitative into something that can really all of a sudden leave someone with a with a feeling of stigma before they even have gotten out the gate. Definitely, yeah. And I think you know that's actually, that's a really interesting way to think about it as like sort of an an institution. But right, I think you know well maybe this is naive, but it's sort of like. I don't think any of these standards were 
invented to be malicious, but they become malicious because of, of association. And, you know, the cheerleader thing is kind of a perfect example where cheerleading is just a sport. A cheerleading outfit is just pieces of clothing, but the cheerleader as a concept became this like cultural figure. And for me, it always represented a standard of beauty, a standard of femininity, a standard of of youth, how you're supposed to be living your young life, um, that I felt alienated from. And that, that made me feel, you know, like it's exactly what you were saying. It's a stigma that I could never, that I could never live up to. And because I couldn't fit into the cheerleader box, you know, the quote unquote cheerleader box is like, I could never be beautiful. I could never be popular. I could never be acceptable. I could never have the type of social life that you're quote unquote supposed to have. I think it's a character entirely made up of of supposed to and association. I think when I say cheerleader, uh, you picture someone probably blonde, probably white, probably thin. Um, and when I was growing up, I was none of those things. I still am, you know, I'm not white or blonde um, and I never will be. And that has been also a very mentally affecting journey even into my adulthood because even when the cheerleader character became I guess sort of tongue-in-cheek or ironic or subverted however you want to say it the way that people saw me suddenly shifted to fit that box even when my sort of form and personhood didn't I I remember people used to come up to me at shows and be like I expected your band to be some like frilly dumb pop band I expected you to be you know unsubstantial I expected you to be a bitch you know I get I got a lot of those projections and associations just because I put on some clothes and because I called my band pom-pom squad and that is still something that's been people get so wrapped up in it and people, it becomes almost inescapable, you know, is people always want to be like, why a cheerleader? Why a cheerleader? Because I don't live up to their expectation of that thing, you know? Yeah. And I think the word that you use that's so important is supposed. And that changes the entire game. Because if there's somebody who is a cheerleader and this is one path to you want to call it happiness, you want to call it success, community, whatever it may be, that's fine. You know, you know, if that's something, you know, because then there's certain people who feel like, okay, that that fits me. But if it's supposed, that changes the whole dynamic. And now it becomes, again, sort of a measure of pain, a measure of suffering. And, and here you are, not only going through it personally, but even just taking on the archetype of the cheerleader, you're now evoking such a reaction in people, which quite frankly, from an artistic perspective, to me means you're totally on the right track because that means that you're evoking people's biases and their preconceptions and you're challenging them, which is amazing, even though I, I, I would imagine it can be very uncomfortable because of how people are coming at you with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think ultimately I am proud of it and I've seen a lot of framings of it in people's mind as like oh you know the cheerleader character is misogynistic and it's like actually maybe you maybe you are like it's sort of like there's nothing there's nothing inherently misogynistic about 
a sport, this sport, you know, I mean, I guess, I don't know. It depends on how you want to look at it. But I think for me, I see cheerleaders as these like incredibly powerful athletes. And maybe that hasn't always been my perception, but that reframing in the, in the past few years, especially has been really exciting and and important um, that cheerleaders are athletes. Cheerleaders are, are strong, you know, and it's sort of like things don't have to stay exactly in your expectation. And I think when I hear somebody say, you know, you wearing a cheerleading uniform or, you know, you being feminine is, is misogynistic. It's like, one, I'm, I'm gay. I don't, I don't do it for men regardless, you know, I do it for me and, and, and being evocative. Yeah. Like sometimes it really sucks as like the, as the human being as the sort of like inside heart person. Um, but as an artist, it, it yeah, it is exciting to see people have such a visceral reaction to to what I'm doing. It's exciting and it's confusing. Yeah, and something that you and I were talking about before the podcast, actually on one of our two attempted recordings of the podcast beforehand, was the role of sexism in mental health. And I think that what you're talking about here is such a good example of that because, as you said, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which a, a cheerleader as an athlete, right? So even considering cheering an athlete or a cheerleader to be an athlete, that in and of itself is very different than how it's often portrayed. And isn't this a great sign of achievement? But one of the things that I think from a more sexist lens that comes in is sort of like, oh, you know, that's how a woman should be happy. Right. Right. And that I think is one of the most, to me, I think the way that you're describing it right now is like, well, who who said that? Did the person who was being the cheerleader say that this is how I am all the time? Because when I see someone who's another athlete, I don't think, well, they're swimming all the time or they're like playing basketball all the time. They're, right. you know, and this idea, you know, who came up with the idea that cheerleaders are supposed to be happy? And that's the way people should be, because I think that's one of the ways that that archetype became sexist. And maybe it was sexism that got it there in the first place. I, you know, I agree. And I did. It's recalling, it's, you know, reminding me of this tweet that I saw once and it was somebody had reshared an article of mine where I kind of, you know, I, I tend to talk about this a lot. You know, it's a common question is why the cheerleader? And I was saying like, it, it was the standard that I felt like I couldn't fit into. And the person was like, basically like, stop whining. Like, you know, you felt like you couldn't be a cheerleader because you're such a downer and cheerleaders are supposed to make people happy, you know? And it, you know, the hearing you talk about it like that, it's true. It is this interesting expectation of, you know, and it also reminds me of another story that I think reflects my cheerleader journey, embodying the image as, you know, a way to criticize it in a way. When I was in high school, I went to a very heteronormative, patriarchal, Republican school. It's very, very that. And I had this friend who was a cheerleader and she was, you know, I guess not the typical cheerleader that I expected, you know, as a teenager who only grew up watching movies where the cheerleaders were dumb, evil bitches. Um, she was my friend and she was very sweet and smart and cool. And I remember that a requirement of the cheerleaders at my school was that they had to bake for the football players on game day they'd bake for them which like think about think about that they had to bake for these 
these boys, they were paired with a boy and they had to bake for that boy. And my friend was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't want to. Um, and so she didn't. And the head cheerleader sent this very passive aggressive text to all of the girls on the squad being like, our aim is to please ladies. And that's so, it's so interesting hearing like a high school girl police another high school girl by literally saying our job is to please these men by baking for them. You know, that is like very 50s scary. Yeah. So there was like half a dozen things wrong with that story. So I'm going to go back to the first one, the downer yeah. comment, yeah. but it, it, it brings in, but I think that it's, it's all part of the same story because, you know, when you think about one, one of, one of the things that happens for people with mental health issues is that they feel something and they immediately have the sense, well, they're not supposed to feel that way. You're not supposed to be depressed. You're not supposed to be anxious. You're not supposed to be angry which inherently is often untrue because you need all of your emotions to be able to understand what's going on in the world. Then if you are not supposed to feel that way, well, now let me avoid, let me suppress. And that generally tends to make it worse. And so here you have this situation where you think, well, where do people get these ideas? It's like, we're here to please men by baking. I can't believe I just said that out loud as something that happens, but you know, and then for someone to say, oh, if you have a problem with it, the reason you have a problem with it is because you obviously wanted to be a part of that. Couldn't because you're a downer. I mean, that's like the full cycle of gaslighting, right? Instead of it being like, hey, like interesting conversation is good. Being a cheerleader is one way to be. I'm curious about your thoughts. It's no, being a cheerleader is the way you should be. You're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to please. Anything other than that, you're jealous and, and, you're a, it's because you're a downer. It's like, wow, like you're able to say it now. And I think we're both, I hope that, you know, able to see that and be like, wow, that's problematic. Oh yeah. But what about when you're, but what about when you're a kid and you're a teenager, you know, and it's like, and, and, and maybe you don't know that that's problematic. And then what do you go home thinking about every time you're depressed, every time you're anxious, every time you're angry, every time you have an independent thought, you now have to transpose that mindset. And it's like that, that is how mental health issues get way, way worse than they start. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I do think another thing that has been a huge part of my, you know, something that exacerbated my mental illness is this idea of assimilation as I have to assimilate into a group. You know, I have to, I have to sort of, I remember, God, I love, I love a tangent apparently, but I remember, um, my mom showed me the movie Paris is Burning for the first time. And Paris is Burning is about um, Vogue and the ballroom scene in New York uh, and primarily queer Black people who created this art form. And something that I really related to, you know, I don't know if you know a lot about ballroom and Vogue, but, um, you know, basically the, the whole idea is that you walk a category. So, you know, if it's executive real realness, butch queen realness, the whole point is like, if you're, if you're walking executive realness, it's you want to pass as an executive as close as possible. You want to be able to fool your audience in your body language, in your clothing, in everything. The whole idea is realness passing, um, you know, and for them, it's like a it's like a means of survival in the real world as a queer black person, you know, is 
is passing is finding a way to show people, you know, you are going to look at me and think I'm not competent. I'm not an executive, but I know that if I just put on the clothes and I put on the attitude, then I'm an executive and fuck you. And it is, you know, a subversive way of, of dealing with the world. Um, and I also, but I related to it in terms of assimilation, passing this idea of trying to convince other people that I am something, that I am effortless, that I'm the girl next door, that I'm, you know, whatever character I thought I needed to be to appeal to people, except instead of doing this in a group of like-minded people who were supportive and understanding, I was doing it for a group of people who didn't give a shit about me and who were not, you know, there for my creative expression or my best interests. It was just for the express purpose of being the person that I thought that I needed to be supposed, again, this supposed to be, to fit into society to you know at the time to get a boyfriend to be in a friend group to you know whatever I felt I needed to do and and you know as an adult knowing that I'm you know and I think as much as I want to say like you know now that I know that I'm queer I know better and in some ways I do I feel like a cardinal lesson in my life has been that I need to stop trying to assimilate, whether that's me trying to pass with a straight group of girls as my friend, or me trying to pass as a cool art kid to my trust fund friends at NYU, you know, or me trying to fit in with a certain scene of musicians. I think my life lesson always is that that's never going to be good or healthy for me. And I think, you know, it's, it's a lesson that's, that's followed me throughout my throughout my mental health journey and I feel like I finally am coming out of that need um which has been a big step for me I think you know it's this that and I apologize because it sounds like I'm harping on specific words like you know suppose but in this case the term character right the term character by definition is fake and, you know, and like you said, it's like, if you are someone who is choosing to be a character actor, you know, you look at a certain situation, you think, I really want to be like this, whatever that is. So I of my own free will, and my own choice, I'm going to do what I can to quote, unquote, fit in. It's like, okay, I guess that's fine. You know, people are entitled to what they want. But it's so often that that's not how it's presented. It's presented again as a suppose, it's presented as a mandate. And right out the gate, think about what you're talking about. It's like, you know, ha having to present yourself to fit into something that you're talking about, even just in terms of sexuality, like, it's like, that's not me, you know, it's like, you know, how confusing is it for someone who's gay to like, have to be before they've even hashed out their sexuality, like start to pretend that it, they're a different sexuality. I mean, that's like eight levels of problem, you know? And again, this is just before you even got into adulthood in theory. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I think no, no human being, well, it's like, you know, everybody is always like, Oh, they're a character. No one's a character. No one is, no one's two dimensional. And as somebody who was like steeped in media my entire life, which is not something that I'm 
ungrateful for because I did learn a lot. There's also a lot of unlearning that comes with being a, you know, my parents were raised by TV and I was raised by TV and I still spend so much of my life in front of a screen. And I think it makes one, it helps, you know, it does help you understand the world a little bit better, but it also creates expectations of the world that are not, not, not fair and not real. And it does almost force you to think of people in a two-dimensional way. Well, you're this kind of person. You're, you know, you're that kind of person. And I think, you know, it's like it's categories are an easy way to see the world, but they're not an accurate way to see the world necessarily. Well, and, and I think something that you've talked about in interviews before is just why it's so important then to have representation, especially in the media. You know, there's a lot of things that are potentially problematic about social media and the internet and all that kind of thing now. But one thing that I think is positive is that you can find a lot of different examples of something that you feel like you are and something that you want to be. And obviously, like even as an example on, on this podcast, like part of it is, you know, kind of mental health representation. Like there's a lot of people out there who have felt depressed or anxious and are like, I, they haven't told anybody. They don't know if there's anyone else out there who feels this way. It can be terrifying. Um, but all the things that you're talking about, it's like, well, okay, even within the context of cheerleaders, cheerleaders can look a lot of different ways. Cheerleaders can be a lot of different ways. You know, musicians can be a lot of different things. You know, it's, I think that that's why it is so important to have these different paths. So it moves it from being a supposed to, to being a could be which is all the the difference in the world because it could be this, but that means it could also be that. Right. And you have to figure out the this or that that makes sense for you as opposed to let me put all my energy into what I'm supposed to be, which by the way, the worst thing that could happen in some cases is that you actually get there, <laughs> you know, because then you're like stuck in this world where you're a character and not even you. When I was growing up, my brother and my sister and I were really into anime and video games. And we definitely were like the weird kids in our town for being into that. And, you know, my sister and I for being brown and for being girls. And, you know, I never met anybody who had the same interests as me for a long time. And now I'm meeting so many other marginalized women and non-binary people and, you know, gender non-conforming people who, who like the same things I do. And it's been really exciting and fun and, and so much more accessible and makes me feel like I can connect with my childhood self, you know, the self that I was so ashamed of for so long and so embarrassed of in a more loving and fair way. And I think also fantasy for a long time was the only place that I felt like I could see myself. And I think, especially with media, and I've talked about this a little bit with like the Virgin Suicides, which was one of my first representations of mental health. Um, I, when you're like not represented in totality, which no one really is, but it's sort of like when you never see a character who's like a young queer mixed race girl who likes music, you know, you have to like hodgepodge yourself together you know you have to sort of hodgepodge your favorite characters and when there were like these fantasy characters who possessed qualities that nobody has but also possessed the qualities that I had loved the things that I loved that was my first time really feeling represented and uh oh my gosh my 
my partner and I, so I'm rewatching Sailor Moon right now, which is like one of my favorite things in the world ever. And I think for, for many, many years, people were always like, what was your sexual awakening? And I had no idea, but they recently re- redubbed Sailor Moon on uh, like in 2010. And I found out that there was so much stuff that was censored in the US because there are characters who are queer and trans and there's a lesbian couple who are portrayed as this like completely loving, dedicated, beautiful, elegant pair, you know, and it was one of the first lesbian representations on television in Japan, but in the US they made them cousins. And like thinking back on it, I think younger me knew they were not cousins. And there's an episode where one of the the sailors, Sailor Jupiter, has a huge crush on the more butch girl in the in the couple. And I remember I used to watch that episode over and over and over. And I really there's something about the way that she cared about her, even if I didn't know that it was a, a, you know, literally a queer relationship that I just understood and that felt really right and that I wanted to just keep absorbing. Um, and now rewatching it as an adult and actually seeing what I was supposed to, you know, what was what was there and what I'm supposed to see has been so special and also really amazing to show my partner this part of my myself and my childhood that, you know, if I had seen like a gay couple on TV, maybe my coming out wouldn't have been as difficult to reckon with because, you know, my parents are, are very accepting. I never grew up in a household where I was told that there's anything wrong with being gay. You know, there was no, there was, you know, sort of in theory, like nothing should have held me back from, from having that realization or telling my, you know, my family who I am, but that societal pressure and also like when I would watch TV, all of the pretty girls were straight and were chasing after boys. And I wanted to be a pretty girl, you know? And it felt like to be pretty, you had to be quiet. You had to be small. You had to be accommodating. You know, there were so many qualities that I absorbed from the media that was playing in America that, you know, could have been avoided if I had I had seen one other single story. You know, if there had been one other story that had been told. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting that you're saying, well, everything's a character. And that's that's true. And nobody is ever represented fully, but there's percentages and there's degrees. And I think what you're talking about is if every single TV show, right, in every you know, is is there's certain themes. If every time you you look at, you know, the cheerleading squad there are certain commonalities, you know, if every time you pick up a magazine, there are certain types of people on it. And if you don't see yourself in any of it, in the way that it feels genuine to you, it's hard to then say, oh, it's fine. Like, no problem. Like, my race is no problem. My sexuality is no problem. My gender identity is no problem. My mental health is no problem. Even if you have supportive parents, because, you know, we're like part of part of, I think, the problem with the stigma of of mental illness is it presumes that negative feelings are unhealthy or dysfunctional, inherently inherently bad. Yeah. And there's and there are obviously for people who have, you know, biologically are more likely to feel certain ways, et cetera. But 
a lot of what we are thinking in the world, it's not necessarily that we're always right with our negative thoughts, but it is sort of like, hey, let's maybe just take a little bit of time to vet that a little bit. You know, in a situation like that, it's kind of like, think about what we were talking about before. It's like, you're not seeing these things in culture and someone's saying, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's like, well, how do you, how do you articulate as a kid? You know, now kids understand the term representation. They understand the term privilege. But, but when I was growing up, no, what do you mean representation or privilege? Like these are like, how do you explain to someone that you don't see yourself in the world in a way that feels authentic to you? You know, and then someone will just say, oh, cheer up or look on the bright side. And it's like, okay, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Now I'm going to go do that. I think that's going to help, you know? Exactly. It's hard. You know, I think I'm grateful to have been born sort of before, like I, my, I got an Instagram in high school, you know, and I know a lot of kids who have had, I guess I don't know a lot of kids because I don't know a lot of kids, but I know like people a couple years younger than me, <laughs> um, have had social media their entire lives and been and have been allowed on social media their entire lives. And I, I know for myself, you know, as a loser, you know, I grew up bullied extremely to the point where I left school that when I got an Instagram, it occurred to me very early on that it was a tool to completely represent myself in exactly the way that I saw myself you know, because every image could be planned, could be taken at the exact right angle at the exact right time in the exact right place. And in many ways, it was positive for me because I got to find a version of myself that felt like the best version of myself, my superhero persona. And I could, you know, that was around the time that I was really being exposed to alternative media through like Tumblr and, you know, the internet. And, uh, so I was like, okay, there's a different mold that I can fit. And, and you know, again, it was a mold, uh, but it was a mold that felt like I was moving in the right direction towards finding myself and finding a person that, that actually felt closer to, to me at the core. Um, and it was also like weirdly the vehicle for how I became accepted in high school. I mean, I think when I was 16 or 17, I, my parents changed, you know, I I've had, I've always had like baby fat and I did up until like last year, but, um, I lost a little bit of my baby fat. I started dressing better. I learned about makeup, you know, and I started shopping at like different places than the other girls in my high school shop. Like I wanted to go thrifting and find vintage stuff. And, you know, I started sort of making myself overtly stand out as opposed to trying to really fit in. And from there it was like, there were like popular girls commenting on my stuff. Like I would go to my, this was like also very, this is a very sweet part of the story, but you know, I was very depressed and it, everything sucked and uh, not everything. That's an exaggeration, but it's how it felt. And my mom uh, one day surprised me and was like, you know, listen, if you get all your homework done, we can go to all of these concerts by our house. And she would take me to, to shows. Like we would go like sometimes three times a week, like if there were really good shows coming through. And that was a, a really beautiful thing that obviously affected me a lot and uh laid the groundwork for my career now um but like all the popular girls would be commenting like tell me about the show babe like hope you're having fun and it's like I don't know you like I don't talk to you and I think that's sort of when I realized like everybody was keeping up appearances you know because in commenting on my shit 
they were trying to keep up the appearance that they were friends with the cool girl, you know, because suddenly I was representing myself a different way and I was the cool girl, you know, versus being like the ugly duckling or the nerd. And I, th- I think that's such an interesting perspective, again, because the the concept of the effect of social media on mental health is such a, a hot topic. But I think what you're talking about, again, is one way that it can be constructive, which is that you can represent yourself the way that you want and potentially create an opportunity for people who connect with that representation to find you. And that for somebody who doesn't otherwise have the opportunity to represent themselves is a very, very powerful tool, you know, to be able to present as you want, to be able to find groups that you want. And I think that, you know, going all the way back to the the cheerleader thing, it's, you know, the but on the downside, if someone's looking in on that and then sort of being like, oh, now she's again, like this sort of like, you know, this judgment, like, oh, oh, she's one of the cool kids. And I have to be like that, too. It's like, OK, that's that's where it becomes problematic, where it's sort of like assuming that this is the only representation of the person and all these assumptions that go along with it and comparing yourselves you know, comparing yourself negatively to it, that's when it really becomes, uh, I think, I think more problematic for mental health. But what you're talking about is one powerful tool of it that I think can be very valuable to people who otherwise don't feel like they have the opportunity to represent. Yeah, like, build, you know, building out a community. I think it's funny, because as I've, I get very galaxy brain about everything, and I start thinking about what everything means. And, you know, I think, while I'm talking about it, this i'm just kind of realizing like sounds silly but it's like it's all it's equally good and bad like all of it i think the further i get from being a tiny indie diy band the more the humanity my humanity is obscured to the people who are viewing me and that's been an interesting weight on my mental health and i'm i understand this as a person who I was never like a celebrity. Well, I guess I could try to say that I was never a celebrity worshiper. And I guess that means I was never like a rabid fangirl, but I was a voracious observer and I would reverse engineer everything in my head, you know? And that was part of the whole idea of passing is if I wanted to look like something, I would study it. I would, if I wanted to to sound like something, I would, I am a, you know, it's why I use reference in my work a lot is I feel like it can enrich the meaning of, of what you're, of what you're saying is using references, using kind of a wider cultural scope. But I did elevate a lot of the people that I liked, the things I liked to sort of beyond human for better or for worse. And now that I'm in the position that some of the people I looked up to are in, I'm realizing how human it is and i think it's you know even like doing an interview the thing about doing an interview that sucks and i love doing interviews is that in a one-on-one conversation i could say exactly what i mean and it can register exactly how i want it to register with the person who's sitting across the table from me or sitting across the zoom call from me but the second that it gets heard by someone else, the context is missing because the energy that exists between the two people talking doesn't exist to them. 
And I never understood why celebrities would say, you know, what I perceived as like such stupid things in interviews. But what I was not considering was the context. And and a lot of celebrities say some really stupid things. Um, But sometimes there are these sort of scandals built off of misunderstanding. And when I am a person on the internet, which I often am, I'm very cautious of everything that I say and do because of the fear of being wrong. And sometimes it prevents me from saying anything at all. But I've I've been trying in my life to exercise more understanding and empathy. And, you know, I, there's so many experiences I've yet to have. And I know that at that I'm only going to experience that more and more. But I do just find like being a public figure can be very difficult in that way in the like I wish that you could just see that I'm a that they're all people and I'm a person and you know I guess it maybe makes me sound like bigger than I am or more you know inflated than I than I actually am but I just truly mean it as like even in an interpersonal way like trying to come at things from a little bit more of a galaxy brain perspective like thinking of it from all angles before making a decision or a judgment about somebody. Yeah, I think one of the biggest ways that what you're describing happens is is around issues of mental health because I think that if someone is angry or is expresses anger or expresses feeling sad or expresses being anxious or really talks about anything when you hear it in the context of a conversation it's very much like what we do to mental health issues in general. It's like decontextualized. It just sounds oh my God, that's bad. Or, oh my God, that's scary. In context, it's like, oh, that's understandable. And I think that one of the things that can happen is that's also when a lot of prejudices and how it's portrayed, right? Like talking about the cheerleader concept, like, oh, this is, oh, this is an angry woman, Right. right? Or this is someone of a particular race that's angry or, you know, the stereotypical, like neurotic, this person or whatever. And it's like, that's where I think I see a lot of that stuff happening is where you'll you take like an entire conversation and, and the, the, the news will be picked out out of context. And all of a sudden you're like, huh, I don't know if that's intentional, but it's making this person seem like more of a stereotype or a caricature or a character. than if you got the whole context of the conversation, that's something that makes people not want to talk about mental health at all. It makes them not even want to express emotion for fear of being put in that meat grinder. Definitely. I mean, I think I've shied away from talking about my mental health in public a lot more since the band has been picking up more, you know? And it's like, I know in a way I'm doing a disservice to the people who care about me and listen to music because there probably is somebody who needs to hear what I'm saying, you know, and that who would feel more represented by hearing me be like, I am a person with bipolar disorder, you know, but it's, it is hard. Like still to this day, it's, it's difficult to not sort of hear somebody in my head. You know, anytime I'm, I think of posting, like I'm having a rough time. I'm upset. This is really hurting me. The like, boohoo, you're a pretty girl who wears fancy clothes and you get to tour for a living, you know, like that's always sort of in the back of my, in the back of my head is the, the critic. Yeah. As if bipolar has anything to do with any of those things. And again, it's sort of like here you are a whole person talking about your whole life, your whole representation. And then 
it, it can be used against you in that way. And, and I think that that definitely is one of the other sides of, you know, there's, there's the mental health stigma where people are treated like they're completely without value because of a mental health issue. And then there's the like, well, if you have value, why do you have a mental health issue? Mm. And it's sort of like, oh God, it's like, where, where's the space to just be like, there's the, yeah, there's no, and, and it's, it's very tough because in that situation, getting back to what you're describing with social media representation, all these things are now being used against you. It's like, it's being weaponized against your own mental health. And it's just like, okay, that wasn't the point. Now, do I stop presenting myself in a positive way? Cause then by, I don't know, I just want to hide, you know, like I'm not saying you personally just want to hide, but I think a lot of people, that's the feeling that they have. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's nothing worse than being vulnerable and it not being perceived well, you know, it being perceived as weakness or it being perceived as whining or, you know, it just being responded to poorly. And I think, you know, that's also part of the reason that like loneliness kind of to go back to the quote from before, like loneliness is so intrinsic to being young is because I do feel like a lot of the time you are just told like, well, you're just sad because you're a teenager. Like that's just what teenagers are. You're hormonal, you're sad. And it's sort of like, even now, even as an adult, this whole like you're writing, like you're pulling from your diary or sad girl, you make sad music. It's like, you know, or this whole like, she's so dramatic. She's so theatrical. And it's like, I just have a mood disorder. Like I just, I just, I, that's sort of just the way my brain operates is in those highs and lows. And, you know, being young, being a woman, people tend to want to explain it away as <sighs> drama or immaturity or childishness or, or teenagehood or whatever. I think there's a lot of, a lot of ways that people try to explain away and, and, dismiss that make it you know just so difficult to 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 be the representation that you want for other people and also to feel represented by other people because i think there's just equal opportunity fear of describing the things they're going through yeah and it just it just goes back to where we started the conversation it's sort of like well it starts with that like well you're supposed to be happy if you're not this kind of woman or this kind of girl there's a problem. Now we're going to, you know, now it's like you're the dramatic girl, you're Tina. It's like, it's like there's one narrow way that you're allowed to be in that cheerleader is the optimal kind of zone. And then everything else, it's just a series of like, it's basically just a series of bad things. You know, it's just sort of a question of like, well, what bad thing? But it, a lot of it comes down to, it's like, well, why can't people have different mood states why can't people also like you know somebody can be bipolar and it be okay you know and it's sort of like why why are we even having to talk about well it's why why are we even minimizing it it's like let's let's acknowledge it in the way of understanding it as something that people go through but then sort of also say like but then as people manage that there's a lot of other things they can be as well you know and again even those comments like it's like you're the dramatic girl of this. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just said bipolar. Like what? And you know, I think, I don't think any interview I've ever done has ever published. Cause I say it in, I say it in maybe every 
interview, I say, people always say I'm so dramatic, but I just have a mood disorder. And I don't think anyone's ever published it. And I think that's a quote that no one has ever published. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody has, but. Which specific quote? Me just being like, you know, people saying that I'm, I'm really dramatic, but I just have a mood disorder, you know, or people saying that it's, you know, me writing about being a teenager and it's like, no, it's me writing about being an adult with a mood disorder you know, but everything is so, and again, it's like a, a, the perfect storm of me dressing like a cheerleader for many years and calling my album Death of a Cheerleader and the band being called Pom Pom Squad. No, it has, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, I guess it's responsible to consider sources, but no, I mean, it's just like, it's, I mean, you know, bipolar disorder, it's like saying like, oh, you have diabetes. Like she's just being dramatic when her blood sugar is low and she's like, Oh my God, I'm fainting. It's like, Oh, there she is again. You know, the dramatic diabetes girl. It's like, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's no different. And I think that even that, that statement that you're, which I, again, I, I think going back to the galaxy brain, I think it's very responsible for you to think about all the things that may have led up to that moment. But it's like, even if you just think about it implicitly, it's almost like you now have to figure out, well, what did I potentially do to bring about this misunderstanding? Oh, always. And it's like, and it's like nothing. People, people don't understand bipolar. And that's it. And it's like, and and but but you know, you're in a situation where it's like you can talk about it, you think about how many people are sitting there being like, what did I do? Like, what did I not only am I am I depressed, am I bipolar, I have panic and Oh, I should have never joined theater. I mean, it's just like, I mean, think about that. That's like, I mean, I, I'm not, it, it's just like, it's such an unbelievable concept. But the problem is, is that you're probably right to some extent. Like some people probably were like, oh, you know, like, well, why is she doing this? And that's, it, is that by, like the whole, the whole concept of it is so preposterous, but you're probably right about how a lot of people's brains went to that place in terms of stigma. Right. I think a lot. I don't know what happens sometimes, but I tend to just believe that everything is my fault. I think if I ever misstep, you know, or like, oh God, going there, there's like a picture of me that I hate, that I hate. That's an oft used picture of me where it was just like taken at the wrong time and I feel very exposed and a lot of people were making gross comments about it and you know and it it still lives on to this day and I hate it and I hate it I hate when people use it um and I never want to speak out about it because I I the photographer was so kind and it's just like not something that I I don't I never wanted to like make it seem like I was calling that person out but the first thought that I had when I saw it was, oh my God, I should have, I should have, you know, done this. I should have done that differently. And it's like, in all actuality, like someone should have asked me, is it okay if we use the picture, if we publish the picture? And that's not necessarily like a standard in journalism, but I think it should be, you know, just because especially being a woman, oh, uh, body stuff is very difficult and you know your body gets attacked sort of first and foremost if somebody doesn't like you if someone doesn't like the music it's she's she's not that pretty anyway she's ugly she's this she's that and that's very personal like if somebody was like I hate your music I'd be like okay it's not for you you know like sometimes it hurts for sure but for the most part like I can rationalize it away by being like 
all right, maybe you're not the type of person that I wanted to reach with my music. When it's your body, you know, it's like, God, there's nothing I can do about that. I didn't ask for it. You know, I didn't, I, I, it's just what I have. I just, it's just the thing that I got, you know, but I, I just wish that, and it's that thing. It's sort of like you get obscured and your mental health kind of takes over and, you know, the negative thought process starts, but it's like, I, I always, first and foremost, I'm like, how did I, how did I mess this up and how is it my fault? And what should I have done differently? Yeah. And I mean, and, and, and it's really not, I mean, when you think about a mental health issue, it's, it's the same thing. Like people are judging your body. It's, it's the mind body part of someone's body. But like calling someone saying like, oh, bipolar, they're just dramatic or, oh, they're just this. It's your personhood, you know? It's your, it's your whole, yeah, it's your whole, it's your whole being. And I think it gets back again to that central premise when it's a supposed to be a certain way, or even this thing, like the idea that, that we don't have control over our representation, you know, we don't have control over it in some ways. I mean, look, and this is obviously a very big issue right now is, is the sense of having control over one's body. You know, it is, it is very powerful and it's so important. It's so important that people have that control and, and also feel that they have the control. It's like both, you know, you have to have, it has to be, there is control and there's that feeling of control. And you know, what you're talking about is just the number of ways that that can get violated. And it's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, I think the two things that have affected my mental health most of my life are like being a teenager and being in public, to be honest. The last year of my life, it's like coming up on like, well, oh, Jesus Christ. The last year of my life has been extremely destabilizing. And I do think in part, it's like the success of the band. And again, it, it is sort of this like, I don't talk about it because it's a, you know, you asked for this, you, you know, you were the one who wanted this and promoted your music and, you know, did this, that, and the other. Right. I mean, I think we both agree that once the phrase you asked for this comes into play, we're already in like a very problematic okay. game, you know, because the, because the thing is, and we've talked about this on this podcast many times, wanting to do someone's music, wanting to play it in front of people especially when you're younger, but even people who are older, like you don't know everything that goes along with that life. And I think that one of the reasons why I think musicians have such uh, intrinsic understanding of mental health issues, one is tend to be introspective galaxy brain, but also the life as, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, the life of a musician seems almost entirely designed to destroy one's mental health, <laughs> especially something like bipolar where, where uh, rhythms are so important sleep rhythms eating rhythms like extra like like stability of rhythms is something that's very important because bipolar is such a uh biological kind of stress model thing yeah. that it's you know and the idea that like oh well i knew it's been bad for, it's like no yeah I, that is something that's incredibly difficult for people's mental health and well-being yeah i mean i think maybe like how my bipolar manifests is like depression and then for me mania is usually defined by like periods of like extremely high agitation and anxiety 
And I think a lot of the times when I would be assessed, people are like, well, do you have manic episodes? Like you think you can do anything or on top of the world? And I'm like, not really. And so they're like, okay, so you're not bipolar, you know? And when I finally like got my proper diagnosis and realized like my anxiety was, was part of my bipolar disorder, you know, that was illuminating, you know, because, you know, your anxiety, it's like, just feels like an invisible enemy is attacking you and, and you're just constantly on edge. And my catchphrase is, are you mad at me? And, you know, it's hard. And like, that's something that no one had ever like explained to me before or like talked to me about. And you're right. It's like being a musician is very stress inducing, is very anxiety inducing, is very, you know, it's sort of like you're completely primed to have fixations on things and obsessions with things and, you know, touring, which is a huge part of my life right now. I really had to mentally prepare for, you know, and I, I'm lucky because I grew up in a family who has been in the music business and my dad did a lot of touring before I was born. And, you know, what I always heard about the music industry was don't ever go into it. It's horrible. It's hellish. Touring is the worst. You know, I didn't really hear a good thing about the industry growing up, you know, and my parents were very shocked and upset when I decided to go into it, honestly. And, you know, they love me and they're supportive and they're proud of me. But I think it was healthy for me to actually have that impression of touring going in because I really prepared to, I had, I needed all of my comfort things, you know, I needed to have everything to be the most comfortable and the most sane that I could be. And, and, you know, this is another reason I don't really talk about tour. There's, there's this band who I am, you know, friendly with the lead singer and they, tried to talk openly about how difficult touring is and they got shredded online and it's like people are essentially advocating for like worse working conditions for musicians they're like oh if you're worried about money sleep in the car and it's like that's not good like that's just like that's not good and especially like one for people who are driving all day meeting people all day you know you stay up late you wake up early it's so it's just a completely destabilizing existence being that mobile you're not sleeping regularly no. you're not necessarily guaranteed that you're eating in a healthy way you don't necessarily have access to regular exercise you're often being offered substances left and right and may not always be in a situation where you're near a pharmacy and if you're taking any medication that you have access to yours okay so that's already four things right there they're destabilizing God forbid if you're an introvert and are drained by people, you have to spend all day. Then you're put in a situation where you're in the public eye and the whole time all this is happening in public. And, you know, and I, 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 I'd like to think because part of the reason why we do the podcast is, is for people to kind of understand, like, how is it that, like, what are their musical heroes going through? What's part of the reason why there's a certain empathy there? But I think that if you break it down that way, I think most people can also see when any of those things happen, they know how it destabilizes their mental health. And so you're talking about that happening every day, regularly, you know, and it's like, and, and I think that people are getting much more the idea that like, look, like those, 
you know, it's, it's great because other people use it as this fantasy, like, oh, get to live on the road. And, you know, and it's so different than the humdrum of life. It's like, yeah, but you know, in the humdrum of life, you get your bed, you get your refrigerator, your friends are around, your family's around, like you, you get to, you get to be out of the public eye if you want to. It's like, those are things that people use for their coping. I mean, you know this, you're, you're going through it. I think there's an expectation of people in the public eye to be like superhuman, you know? And like, I remember the first time I found out that like models get acne and I was like, what? Like, I thought they were just supposed to be like natural. You know, it's like, oh, you're, the whole reason you got that job is because you're just naturally perfect, you know? And it's like, just not the case for anybody in any profession. It's just, you know, you're not born knowing how to do any of this. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're completely right. And I, I am exactly the person who you described. I'm extremely introverted. Like I, you know, I need, I need to feel sane and stable somewhere. And I think, you know, again, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to completely shit on touring because it is really beautiful. It is really amazing. And I feel so lucky to be able to do it. But at the same time, you know, I think I'm lucky that the people around me for the most part, keep me really sane. You know, it's like everybody has their bad days on tour but I love my my group and especially you know not especially these two but I love everyone that you know that I've gotten to I, I feel lucky to work with everybody that I've gotten to work with and Shelby and Alex who are my core and have been in the band the longest and are my best friends outside of the band you know in in, in Mia life um really do help me and we support each other and we understand each other's respective illnesses and how each other's minds work. And that's so lucky. And that, you know, I feel like that's something that is, is unique and, and really special about Pom Pom Squad is the unconditional support and love that, that we have as a group, you know, we've worked through a lot together. We've been through a lot together. We've seen a lot of each other. And I do, I really do think in many ways, that's why I am able to do this, you know, and I'm lucky that we have really respectful fans as well. Like we've, we've had, you know, it's like you tour, you have your fair share of creeps, but for the most part, like we have fans that like ask what our dietary restrictions are and like bring us healthy snacks and, you know, and that's so fortunate and, and magical you know, and I recognize that not everybody in my position has that or have those luxuries, you know, it's hard, you know, it's hard. It's just, you're being asked to put so much strain on your, on your mind and your body. And when you're, you know, when you're in a, in a shitty situation or you don't get along with people you're with, like just exacerbates everything. So, you know, I think it's important to surround yourself with people who really get your mental health and, and, relate to you so one uh final question if i can ask speaking of uh, people who relate and get you for a lot of people you know and now you're in the position where it's you like music is one of the first places that they feel understood you know and one of the first places where they go to for their mental health journey it's like that's like okay that i can't i don't know why exactly but i feel like this person gets me or this artist or this band who was that for you? Like, who do you go to or did you go to? Hole, for sure. Hole was the first, like, I was really into Riot Girl, and that was sort of my intro to punk and to, like, the 
light bulb of like, oh, women can start bands and play in bands. Um, but I also felt very alienated from Riot Girl in a lot of ways because it was, you know, very white and tended to sort of lean towards like a white feministy perspective. And when I realized like they weren't really talking about me and it wasn't really for me, that was very disappointing. And then Courtney Love felt more like the outcast girl and she, you know, was very, you know, like hated Riot Girl. And it's like, I don't agree with everything that she's ever said or done by any means, but I related to her feeling of alienation. I related to the way that she experienced anger. And that was that was really special and made me feel like my feelings had value. My anger had value that I could be angry, that I could express anger, which sounds crazy. But yeah, she's a, I mean, she's just an incredible artist and, you know, I think has gotten somewhat of a reframing as well in the last few years. And uh, I don't know. I just... I think for me, the line that I always came back to is someday you will ache like I ache. I think it's so elegant and so simple and such a kiss off and like a curse. And it's like, it's just a stunning display of, of pain and, and, and anger. And it's also just like when you're young and so lonely, you just want somebody to feel what you feel, you know, you want somebody and it's like sort of a call for empathy and also a curse. Like you're, you're going to feel the pain that I feel, you know? So there it is. Mia Baron of Pom Pom Squad talking about the galaxy brain. Now there's so much that we can take away from the conversation with Mia. But I really wanted to highlight one of the last things Mia said when talking about the influence Courtney Love and Hull had on her. Mia talked about how listening to Hull validated that her feelings had value, and specifically that her anger had value. And this is really the spirit behind what Mia and I talked about regarding the galaxy mind. Oftentimes we perceive and feel things that are uncomfortable and even painful. The stigma of mental illness immediately dismisses anything that is different from how we are supposed to feel which is happy and calm, as being dysfunctional. And of course, we don't want people to suffer needlessly if possible. But oftentimes, people who are depressed, angry, or anxious are feeling that way in part because they are picking up on things in the world that are problematic. Racism, sexism, stressful life events, or internal biological issues that make us more prone to depression, anger, or anxiety. It is okay if our galaxy brain picks up these things and we have intense feelings about the world and our lives. It doesn't mean that we need to permanently stay depressed, anxious, or angry. But we also can't cope with these feelings by suppressing or invalidating them. We must embrace our galaxy mind and accept that our feelings have value first. And only then can we cope with our feelings to make changes that will improve our mental health and emotional well-being. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. If you are struggling with bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, or addiction, and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, 
please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.